Dear listener, Sai Ram and greetings from Prashanti Nilayam. Welcome to our radio program, Afternoon Satsang. This is a segment of Radio Sai's Thursday Live, hosted by Prem and Arvind at 12.30pm Indian Standard Time on Thursdays, only on Asia's stream of Radio Sai Global Harmony. The discussion is on Ramakatha Rasavahini, a book written by Swami, and today's episode was first broadcast live on 14th May 2015. Have a listen please. Sairam, dear listeners, this is Prem from Team Radio Sai welcoming you to this week's afternoon satsang. I have with me brother Arvind. If you're a regular follower of our satsang, you'll know that we are in the middle of our Ramakatha fortnight and so we're going to be continuing with the story of Ramayana as written by our dear Lord. But before that, as always, we offer our most humble pranams at Bhagavan's lotus feet to the feet of Lord Hanuman whom we believe is with us whenever we take up the name of Lord Rama and Remembering the most nectarous and sweet name of Lord Rama, let us begin this week's Afternoon Satsang. Shri Raghavam Dasharatatmajamaprame Sitapatim Raghukulanmaya Ratnadipam Ajanubavum Sairam, dear listeners, in our previous episode on the afternoon satsang on the Ramkatha Rasavahini, we had met a very poignant and emotional scene, a scene where brother Bharata is bidding goodbye to his dear brother, to his lord, Sri Rama. In order to do his bidding, 
in order to do lord rama's bidding we had an elaborate discussion on the prema versus dharma battle if we may call it so which happens not only between bharata and rama but which happens always between a devotee and the lord it was a very enlightening and refreshing discussion for us and in case you missed it do go to our previous episode and hear about it we shall now be continuing from where we left off last time before that we have received feedback from several listeners asking us to package this entire ramkatha rasavahini series as one because apart from lord shri rama stories there are a lot of our sai rama stories that are interspersed in this serial in these episodes and it is natural because we have only read about lord shri rama but we have been blessed to experience a part of lord sai rama's glory so it is natural that these two get intertwined with each other definitely try to package this entire series once we have completed the ramkatha rasavahini serial so that is the response to all those lovely mails which definitely filled our heart with great joy and enthusiasm so now we have the entire entourage that has arrived from ayodhya on a return journey back towards ayodhya rama has commanded them to leave rama has offered his sandals to bharata and instead of wearing them bharata decides to place them on top of his head he decides to give them the utmost importance and therefore he carries it on his head and prostrating to rama embracing him lots of tears lots of love lots of warmth after all that king janaka and his entourage turn back towards their kingdom of mithila bharata and the entourage turn back towards ayodhya and this is when the return journey begins just as the onward journey filled them with great joy and anticipation this return journey is filling them with sorrow now that is a beautiful thing that we see here because in the onward journey as the time passed they were getting closer and closer to rama and now they know that as time passes they are getting further and further away from rama so there is a kind of sorrow that is there in the entire contingent but then that is true devotion because though they might have great sorrow they are doing their lord's bidding devotion lies not in doing whatever one wants but in being happy doing whatever the lord wants even if it means personal sorrow and grief and therefore with great devotion the entire entourage from ayodhya is now headed back towards ayodhya in ayodhya what happens is another aspect of the character of bharata which says that he was very serious about you know whatever he was doing because uh, he calls for a coronation ceremony in that sense because he is still not been coronated as the king of ayodhya as uh, the boons of kai kai demanded but then what happens is he asks for a coronation ceremony to be arranged and the sandals which he brings as you said most ceremoniously from lord rama he prays to vasishta that these sandals be enthroned and mm-hmm. they be enthroned as the ruler and he would rule on behalf of that symbol of lord rama and that's what happens and after that ceremony he takes the blessings of all the mothers and 
apparently nobody has any opposition to that you know there is no mention of any kind of opposition whether it is in ramakathas vaini or in any other versions of ramayana because everybody feels that that is the next best thing they can settle for not being able to convince rama to come back and also swami beautifully narrates how the citizens of ayodhya who, who could not make this journey how they are eagerly waiting for days together you know for this retinue to come back and when they see them coming back and they see that they are tired at the end of that journey and the moment they see the tired faces they realize that they've been unsuccessful because you know they know that if they had been successful the joy would have overtaken the sorrow on their faces and uh, yes the ceremony happens the, the sandals of rama are enthroned and after that immediately bharata and shatrughna rush towards a place called nandigrama that's what swami says and you know they build a, a thatched hut for themselves and they continue to live in the same manner rama sita and lakshmana live in the sense they too mat their hair they wear the clothes of a hermit and they begin living like those who are in exile actually it is not exactly living in exile because we see that while bharata and shatrughna are there in nandigrama bharata is more involved in the austerities it is not as if they neglect their duties towards the kingdom we'll possibly come to that later right now i remember an episode that took place during a tri session mm-hmm. you know swami was seated on the jhula and he was speaking about the nine forms of devotion shravanam kirtanam vishnu smaranam padasevanam vandanam archanam dasyam sneham and atmanivedanam and it was a very very interesting discourse because swami revealed the true meaning of each of these pathways or each of these modes of worship if one may call so or each of these ways of devotion and the insights that he gave were amazing and very very interesting and insightful i want to concentrate particularly on the padasevanam when he came to padasevanam swami was mentioning that people think that sitting in the front and pressing the lord's feet is padasevanam but that is not so and correctly also because right now what how do we do padasevanam where do we find those beautiful feet of the lord to press so pressing the lord's feet physically is possibly only symbolic of padasevanam swami then went on to explain what is true padasevanam he said when the avatar descends to the earth when the lord comes in human form there is a path that the lord treads a path that is shown as an ideal for all of humanity that's why swami says my life is my message in the sense swami says you need not listen to what i say just see the life just see the life that swami has led and we will realize what a message swami's life is conveying to us so there is a path that the lord treads when he comes on earth to follow in the footsteps of the lord is true padasevanam swami said and that was such a profound point that swami made it is not enough if you just sit and physically press the lord's feet there's nothing great in that possibly you get momentary joy because i also remember on one occasion when i got this chance it felt like the best thing in the universe prem and you sat there pressing his feet but within 20 25 minutes you know your forearms start aching because all said and done it's a human body it has fatigue and your forearms start aching and believe me though i might sound crazy saying this at that time you just wish that swami i want to break from pressing your feet what you think is the greatest boon that anybody can get you actually don't want that boon because all said and done that is not true padasevanam 
at the same time if you ask anybody who follows the footsteps of the lord i don't think there's anything like tiring from following the footsteps of the lord following the path on which the lord has tread there's only joy and peace supreme and so therefore that is true padasevanam and here it is very symbolic though bharata has enshrined the sandals on the throne it is only symbolic and even him going to nandigrama shows that bharata has decided to tread on the path that his lord has tread and bharata took it to the extreme by doing it even physically but it just shows that bharata follows whatever rama follows whatever rama does whatever rama says that is what you know swami also used to tell us often that you should lead your lives in such a manner so that your lives also become my message i am sure that was the case in bharata's case where bharata's life became rama's message that is why later on we will see swami narrates in a discourse as to how the citizens and denizens of ayodhya get confused between who is rama and who is bharata so much has bharata trod in the footsteps of rama that one is unable to make out even physically the difference between bharata and rama so that is a message i think all of us should must take as to what true padasevanam is and realize that padasevanam is very much possible even today when we feel that swami is physically not with us because true padasevanam is following in the footsteps of swami very true if you look at uh, what bharata has done here what strikes me is you know all of us have a certain kind of attachment to swami and all said and done at the end of the day what bharata is having is a certain amount of attachment you know even after we spoke about the debate between rama and bharata and how janaka gave the right resolution i think end of the day it's a resolution for the intellect you know the buddhi has been satisfied that yes this is the right path but i think some part of you is still not satisfied some part of you is still hurting and some part of you is still saying that you know it would have been better if rama comes and uh, many times when you feel a surge of that love when you feel a surge of that surrender in you you know there is no way to express it there is no way that it can find expression in your daily life so you kind of search for options by which you can give an expression to it in your own life and feel a certain amount of satisfaction you know that's what happens with bharata because he feels that he still feels a certain amount of repentance and if you see indian mythology if you see all the puranic stories always a kind of a healthy expression of this repentance is actually penance many of them many of the people you would see that you know when they do something which is wrong even we have the story of parikshit of course parikshit says that i have 7 days to go what do i do every time they see what is the most sublime option available for your regret for your uh, feeling of repentance and that's what bharata also does and in fact if you look at it when you talk of padasevanam as you know following the footsteps of swami and very true what you said physically doing swami i was reminded of a talk which i heard of mm-hmm. brother sundarayya you know he one uh, even swami asked him what do you want he says swami i want to serve you in, in your private apartment and swami says okay start coming from tomorrow so he surprised that you know he landed that most coveted job so easily with just one prayer mm-hmm. and from the next day he starts going into swami's room and starts serving swami you know takes care of the bedroom and all that and uh, he says that you know there are about three or four students who were all there taking care of swami and that time uh, you know after swami comes back from a darshan or after an extended session they would have this opportunity of pressing swami's feet hmm. so being that new kid in the block every time swami would come and sit he would run and take the opportunity to press swami's feet and he would see the other senior boys would very readily allow him to go and 
you know, do the panseva. Hmm. So he was wondering how how come nobody is there is no fight for this chance. And Swami, you know, in those uh, maybe mid eighties, Swami was himself very well built. He would say that you know when you would press Swami's feet, you would see that Swami is really muscular and really hard. And after a real long day, Swami would want Padaseva to be done with a lot of might. You have to really press Swami's feet. Very vigorously. Very vigorously. And Swami would say, ah, Inka, Inka, press a little more harder, press a little more harder. And he would say that 20 minutes to half an hour, you would feel your whole forearm burning. <laughs> that's how tough it would become. And he would say that, you know, that's when your uh, body takes over your mind. Till then your mind is thinking that, oh, this is such a precious chance, this is such a precious moment and you've been craving for it. And when the aches of the body starts taking over the mind, that's when, you know, that tiredness comes in and that's when you start telling that, Swami, it's enough. You know, this blessing is enough. Give me this blessing in some other form. So some other time. Right. In that sense, when Swami was giving that opportunity for Padaseva, Swami was giving His blessing in a tangible form so that we could accept it. Similarly, I feel when we feel that love and the surge of love for Swami, we seek some tangible expression for that love. And what Swami says is, yes, for that Padasevanam is the option. For a short while, it is this physical Padasevanam, but for a long term, for expression which would benefit you as well as those around you, it is this subtle Padasevanam which Swami says, where you have to take to my message, you have to take to the path. In fact, I think in another discourse, Swami says that, a form of Padasevanam which Mother Yashoda did was following the footsteps of Krishna. Hmm. You know, where you know Krishna would purposely leave the footsteps in uh, butter. with the butter and Yashoda would follow it. Swami would say that is also a form of Padasevanam. Where you try to follow the footprints of the Lord in search of the Lord. I think even that is a beautiful way because when, as you said, now where is the physical option for Padasevanam? Where Swami has left his footprints and if you follow it with a full faith that you are looking for Swami, at the end of the footprints, you are definitely sure to find Swami there. I think. In fact, when we read through the Ramkatha Rasavahini, that is what comes through. While on one hand, we read the description of how Bharata is engaged in thinking of Rama. The next chapter, actually this is the first chapter of the second book, the Ramkatha Rasavahini part 2. So, in that sense, you know, we have completed part 1 of the Ramkatha Rasavahini. In part 2, if we see the first chapter, it begins with... Rama, Lakshmana and Sita in Chitrakuta, Chitrakuta Ashram. But otherwise in Nandikrama. <laughs> because they are sitting and talking all the exactly. time about Bharata. Yes, that is what I was coming to. They are physically in Chitrakuta, but they are remembering Bharata. I remember another little episode here. I think in year or two after we had joined Radio Sai, Professor Venkatraman sent us on a task of photographing all of Swami's water project reservoirs. Not all of Swami's water project, the Anantpur water project reservoirs. So, this project has reservoirs, huge uh, storage reservoirs in different places. And uh, I remember one as Bukaraya Samudram, huge place, huge reservoirs. And so, we hired a vehicle and it was a full day job. You know, first of all, it takes so much time to travel there. And then, once you reach there, it's so huge that you can't shoot, take pictures of it from the ground. You have to climb to some elevated spot and take the image. So, the whole day, entire day went in that and we missed Darshan actually. Both morning and evening because we set out early in the morning. By the time we returned, it was late in the night. Throughout the journey, you know, we were uh, speaking about Swami and also about Professor Venkatraman. And uh, 
at the end of the journey, you know, we were talking among ourselves. So you know what? Today, whole day, Swami and Professor GV must have had hiccups because we were speaking so much about them. That is what we thought. The next morning, the first thing Professor G. Venkatraman tells us is that, you know, yesterday, Swami and me were speaking only about you. You meaning you boys who have gone out, you know, you going and photographing there and, and he asked us that, didn't you get any hiccups? Because, you know, <laughs> and when he said that, I felt so thrilled. I remember noting this down in my diary also. It felt so thrilling because just as we were thinking of our Lord, our Lord was also thinking about us. It felt so beautiful and that is how Swami is, you know. That's why he says, you take one step towards me, I'll take thousand towards you. If we start searching for the Lord, the Lord will also start searching for us. That is the truth and that is what we see even in the Ramayana. Here as Bharata is remembering Rama, Rama is remembering Bharata and you know, exuding joy and peace at the pristine nature of Bharata's love and Bharata's devotion. That is what is happening at Chitrakuta Ashram. If we see on Google Maps, there is a Chitrakuta Ashram that exists even to this day towards the southern border of the state of Uttar Pradesh. It's at a distance of about 300 kilometers from Ayodhya. So, that is just a fact I thought I'll reveal here. I'll mention here. So, Rama, Lakshmana and Sita are at Chitrakuta thinking of Bharata, while Bharata is at Nandigrama thinking of Rama. And of course, from here starts the journey of, I think, they're moving southward, right? The, yes, from they're right, moving uh, southward. Southwestern direction, I think, to be more precise. Correct. And uh, they move from one ashram to the other. And in the process, I think, a couple of interesting uh, anecdotes which come in the process. In fact, one happens at Chitrakuta Peak itself, which involves the son right. of Indra, Jayanta. Right. And there is this uh, mischievous fellow, nothing more than that. Nothing harmful if we see the story of Lord Krishna in when he's in Bindavan, you have Indra himself trying to come and test him because you know that's the power of Maya. If you go through all these stories of the avatars, they would say that at some point, even deities like Brahma, deities like Indra, they get the doubt. You know, is he the one who has come down as our you know Lord Vishnu? Is he the one who is going to? defeat this Ravana, I mean this Asura or whatever it is, is he going to accomplish the task? Especially in the Krishna Avatar, I think it was more. Hmm. Because when they saw this little boy, you know, frolicking and playing with his little uh, playmates, many episodes where all these deities come and test. I think he was just another person like that because he was seeing this Rama, Lakshmana and Sita, this trio coming there. He wanted to test the might of Rama. That's how Swami narrates it. Jayanta. So he takes the form of a crow this is and, the son of Indra. Right, he is the son of Indra, one of the sons of Indra. So he takes the form of a crow and he comes and starts pecking at the sole of the feet of Mother Sita and uh, does it so hard that she starts bleeding. So immediately Rama very casually he just picks up a dried grass and throws it at this crow which then becomes a missile, you know, a, a ball of fire which starts pursuing this crow. Then eventually this crow transforms into this Jayanta and he starts pleading with Rama he says, I'm really sorry, I mean, I, I shouldn't have done this to test you. And he takes recourse at Rama's feet and that's when uh, I think Rama forgives him and blinds him in one eye. And he says that, alright, I forgive you with this. And I think at the same time, even Lord Indra prays to Rama seeking forgiveness on behalf of his son. Exactly. So, Jayanta becomes a one-eyed crow who stays at Chitrakuta for a while. 
after some time rama himself says that it's time for you to leave and so he leaves you know again looking at this episode we know lord rama stands for the paramatma and mother sita for prakriti mother sita stands for the feminine aspect of creation while the lord always stands for the masculine aspect of creation and reading this episode the way swami has narrated it one cannot help but think that the paramatma the lord is very very forgiving he does not mind any injustice that is meted out onto him but if anybody even harms prakriti to a little bit that person will face wrath this is again i feel it has got a metaphorical message for all of us you know prakriti is nature if we tamper with nature if we harm nature to whatever slightest extent it might not even be with the intention to harm nature just like you said jayanta had no evil intentions he didn't want to harm mother sita or anything like that even playfully even playfully just out of mischief because your idol and an idol mind becomes a devil's workshop you don't know what to do and so you peck at prakriti and cause prakriti to bleed cause damage to nature it is going to come back to you manifold and we see how even highly modified punishment becomes blinding in one eye so it is definitely a message for all of us that we have to be careful we have to revere prakriti as we revere parmatma himself how we worship and pray to lord rama in the same way we have to worship and pray to mother sita as well because there is no difference between the two prakriti is just part of the parmatma that is what swami would also time and again say in his discourses that parameshti or the lord whom we worship is actually there in prakriti or srishti he would draw a hierarchy where he would say that the vyashti or the individual is part of the samashti or society which is part of srishti or nature which is in turn part of parameshti or god so he would say that if you want to worship the lord you have to worship society you have to worship nature and this message comes through this story very clearly to all of us and also this is a an interesting description of the the character of lord rama i think if you remove these episodes it looks like he is the most forgiving is the most calm he cannot be angered but if you look at this episode even such a small thing calls for a strict action from lord rama in fact there is another episode i think uh, in the valmiki ramayana it is there hmm. you know when the whole all the uh, ministers and the council come from ayodhya and try to convince rama in the process there is one particular sage who comes and gives a very ridiculous argument you know he says that something to the effect that dashratha's words need not be taken seriously and he gives a particular you know using that typical tarkashastra he gives an argument which says that you can come back and rule and you know there is a little bit of uh, ambiguity and gray area in which you know you can take the thing and for that you know valmiki says the way rama responds to it is very very caustic he tells that how your argument is flawed and he says that at any point I mean i should not look for the easier option and this is the word of my father i have to follow it and then he starts saying that i'm really surprised how my father chose you as to be a part of his you know council of sages because he is a sage who comes and talks to him mm-hmm. so you know there are some aspects like this in the ramayana where they say that you know rama was a very very strict person also in spite of him being you know easily lovable and he's so kind and he's so compassionate but at the same time he was not somebody who was you know resisting from taking stern action at points where it's necessary i think there will be a lot of episodes in this particular aranya kandam where you know rama rebukes in fact there is one particular uh, 
dialogue. I think we'll come to that a bit later. Where Rama gives a word to the sages saying that I will protect you at any cost and you know anybody comes to harm you, I will take it up upon myself as a duty and I will vanquish them and protect you. And then Mother Sita says that, you know, who are you to give a word like this? Because all said and none, you're walking into the forest which is not your area. You know, you're a king of Ayodhya and your jurisdiction is there, but how can you come into the forest and give a blanket protection like this? And that is when Rama explains that, you know, this is the role I've come to play. You know, I've come into the the character of a prince of Ayodhya, that is only the starting point. But by any ways, this is the role I've come to play. Anybody who takes refuge under me, I will protect them. So I think that character of Rama is beautifully brought out in this scene as we see. And the scenes which are to follow, because there are a couple of interesting anecdotes which Swami narrates. So, dear listeners, we will take a little break here. Do be tuned because what's coming next is again some interesting anecdotes, some interesting episodes, which carry a lot of profound meaning and implications as always. So, we will take this little break and after the break, we will continue with the trio who at Chitrakuta. Dasharata Nandana Dayabi Rama Sri Ramachandra Jaya Ramachandra Raghuveera Ranadheera Raghukula Rama Shri Ramachandra Jaya Ramachandra Ramachandra Jaya Ramachandra Shri Ramachandra Ranadheera 
ರಘುವೀರ ರಘುಕುಲ ರಾಮ ರಘುವೀರ ಹೇ ರಘುವೀರ ರಣಧೀರ ರಘುಕುಲ ರಾಮ ರಘುವೀರ ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ ಜಯ ರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ ರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ ಜಯ ರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ ದಶರಥ ನಂದನ ದಯ ವಿರಾಮ ದಶರಥ ರಘುಕುಲ ರಾಮ ಹೇ ರಘುವೀರ ರಣಧೀರ ರಘುಕುಲ ರಾಮ ರಘುವೀರ ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ ಜಯ ರಾಮಚಂದ್ರ welcome back dear listeners hope you enjoyed that very melodious bhajan which praises the lord ramachandra as the victorious one as the supreme one before we leave chitrakuta because after a while the trio rama lakshmana and sita left chitrakuta and proceeded further before we leave chitrakuta we would like to go back again to that episode of jayanta who comes as a crow because there are so many messages that we can derive from that episode in fact we feel that we can have an entire satsang just on that one episode in many of his discourses bhagwan mentions that the original creator the only thing that existed in the beginning is the atma from the atma comes ego or our sense of i mine and thine all this so swami says that the ego is actually the child of the atma and from this ego comes the mind and so swami says therefore the mind is the grandson of the atma and you know lord indra whose son jayanta is is often compared to the mind right and uh, therefore you see that indra at some time is a super god at some times he shown as a god who is you know very frivolous and so on and so forth because that is how the mind is the mind is capable of great things at the same time it's capable of pulling you down the spiritual ladder in no time which is why bhagwan says mana eva manushyanam karanam bandha mokshayo mind is responsible for evolution for your liberation as well as for your bondage and so since jayanta is the son of the mind the son of the mind is something that is subservient to the mind that is under the mind which is the senses so we can possibly take jayanta as a representative of our senses Now again this incident becomes so significant because many times we cause damage to nature to prakriti just in order to satisfy the craving and desires of our senses and just as playfully as jayanta did for instance i want to go and enjoy swimming in a resort you know my intention there is not to harm the nature there or you know because setting up a resort means a lot of water there's a usage of lot of resources 
my intention is never to deprive anybody or harm nature in any manner but unknowingly just like jayanta did it we actually end up hurting nature you know there are so many wildlife reserves in africa and when we go to wikipedia or read about any of these reserves most of the reserves get endangered because of excessive poaching or excessive tourism both which are a result of attraction from the senses while of course poaching is done with a little more evil intent tourism definitely seems to be quite a harmless thing but still it is something that caters to the senses so this episode of jayanta the crow becomes very significant because the other message that it gives us is that our senses that crave for things that desire for things unknown to us can actually cause damage to prakriti to mother nature just as jayanta did to mother sita right i think the best way to look at ramayana in that sense is to see the subtle aspects of this because as a story as we have mentioned this so many times the story we know it episodes of this we would have heard many many times and you know different interpretations of this but i think any story is best taken when you draw the interpretations from it from your level of thinking too you know sometimes it can be conveyed to you as swami would tell in many of the discourses but most of the time you would see that swami would even just tell the story and let the lessons for the person who is listening to be taken from instead of it being given so i think it's important for each one of us to keep going back to these stories and to draw messages as in when we are maturing you know in our intelligence too so in that sense it's very important to go back to these stories again and again and uh, continuing the story of course from this episode of jayanta swami says that the three of them travel in search of another hermitage and they come to the hermitage of sage atri and mother anasuya and uh, just to for those listeners who might not be aware sage atri is the father of the avatar of datatreya and it comes from you know the boon which mother anasuya gets from the trimurtis like brahma vishnu and maheshwara vaishi has the opportunity to mother this avatar who is actually a representation of all the three of them so datatreya is born to sage atri and that is the ashram where rama sita and lakshmana finally reach and the moment they come sage atri realizes who's the guest he is having the honor of hosting and he you know calls them and anasuya takes mother sita aside and you know she starts praising sita and she says that people might not know who you are but i recognize you and then uh, you know sage atri arranges for something like a banquet or something like a assembly where rama is called and he is introduced to the other renunciants in Sadhas. the ashram sadhikas in the ashram and mother anusuya brings mother sita there and that is when i think uh, one of those rare moments where mother sita reveals who lord rama is and who she is where she says that you know you can give me all the praise but the fact is everybody assembled here and every single individual in this humanity has an aspect of femininity in them and that is the aspect of prakriti and she says i am the representative of that feminism in each individual i am that huh. that femininity of you know in each individual because i am prakriti and there is only one person who is completely masculine and that is the purusha himself and the embodiment of that purusha is lord rama so in that sense he is purusha and i am prakriti and this is the revelation which mother sita makes in that assembly of sadhakas at the ashram of sage atri you know there is also this episode in the life of mirabai where uh, there is a krishna bhakta a devotee of krishna or some a gyani i forget his name 
he refuses to see mirabai because he says that i don't come in touch or i don't come into the proximity of women to which mirabai sends a response mm-hmm. which goes as i thought that there was only one purusha for the entire universe and again that highlights the truth that only the lord is a purusha everything else is prakriti which is the feminine aspect the story goes that after that that gyani or that person is enlightened and therefore he meets with mirabai coming back to this part here where everything is feminine swami in his discourses mentions you know that there is a positive and a negative mm-hmm. i was just reading some science facts and something about science in physics and in science one of the least understood things is this concept of matter and antimatter now is they say that physics itself has understood very little of it so i am here to impose what little i have understood of the little that they have understood <laughs> so while reading it it was very very interesting because while reading it i just felt this is so close to discovering what swami says about the positive and the negative about the parmatma and prakriti you know basically what is antimatter is a kind of negative matter for example there is an electron mm-hmm. electron is a negatively charged particle with negligible mass right the antimatter of the electron is what we call a positron or positron it's actually it's been named because it's a positive electron basically it has the same mass of the electron it has the same properties of the electron but in the opposite direction and it has a positive charge because the electron has a negative charge in the same manner there is a thing called antiproton mm-hmm. this is very strange because you know proton has a mass that is almost 1500 times that of an electron so it's a very heavy particle and a proton has a positive charge now an antiproton has a negative charge so it's almost like an electron with one negative charge but it's not an electron because it is as heavy as the proton so it goes on this way in fact antimatter is created when antiparticles combine when an electron and a proton combines we have hydrogen right in the similar manner when a positron and antiproton combine you get antihydrogen antihydrogen actually exists and it is said that when matter and antimatter come together that is when electron and positron come together there is a tremendous surge tremendous release of energy and nothing exists after that you know because matter cancels out antimatter antimatter cancels out matter so basically that famous einsteinian equation of uh, e is equal to mc square energy is mc squared that's what happens and it is said that this is one of the perfect reactions perfect transformations perfect conversions where the entire mass without exception gets converted into energy now here comes the interesting aspect why i felt it is very very spiritual it is said that when the big bang took place matter and antimatter both got created because it is said that in the beginning there was nothing we don't know what was there before the big bang from nothing everything has come we can deduce this from the fact that when matter antimatter come together nothing is left so something came together and nothing is left but energy so working backwards on this in the beginning possibly there was just energy you call it in whatever name you want atma god consciousness whatever there was this energy and that energy is what embodied into both matter and antimatter now the interesting thing is if there is 50% of matter and 50% of antimatter mm-hmm. we would not have had the material universe at all our universe would have been a universe of pure energy 
only energy because matter and antimatter cannot exist in the presence of each other they just cancel out each other releasing tremendous energy but something very interesting happened what the scientists call as asymmetry and asymmetry happened because of which a lot of matter and less of antimatter has been created so even to this day there are matter antimatter collisions releasing tremendous energy but since matter is much 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 more compared to antimatter we have got what we know today as the material universe it is because of the asymmetry thanks to the asymmetry that we have a material universe that we have creation if not for the asymmetry there would be no creation at all you know it makes all the concepts that we read about in mythology so much scientific you know when they say of pralaya dissolution nothing you have to do you just have to remove the asymmetry you remove the asymmetry matter antimatter clash out and you have just pure energy left everything creation is destroyed mm-hmm. so you know it inspires one to think that this asymmetry is possibly what is called maya because maya is what separates prakriti from parmatma that makes us unable to see the same parmatma and prakriti you know that is what brings about duality that is what brings about a material universe and a anti matter material universe however we may term it so it is maya it is maya that brings about the separation and creation just as it is the asymmetry that brings about separation of matter and antimatter and brings about creation so one is positive one is negative and it is so amazing that all these scientific concepts today so easily blend with our mythology blend with what was said then you know 100 years back 200 years back you talk about parmatma and prakriti as the only thing existing nothing else parmatma is positive prakriti is negative everything is feminine it all would have been rubbished no wonder people condemned you know but the beauty is all that has survived and today when they see they see that our scriptures you know the sanatana dharma is so metaphorical and it so easily blends with whatever latest discovery and researches that science is making it is nothing short of a marvel and even as i spent time reading about matter and antimatter i was so thrilled to see that it was so perfectly in sync and uh, therefore i just felt it would be relevant to mention it here when sita is talking about parmatma and prakriti masculinity and femininity the only positive and negative and uh, of course she also speaks about maya maya which makes the entire creation as a dual universe so that maya is nothing but the same asymmetry that the physicists speak about very true i think it's a very very deep topic which you know prakriti and parmatma because in some of the discourses which swami explains i think he uses a lot of science to explain that hmm. even in the 1975 50th birthday discourse swami actually uses a lot of uh, this scientific understanding of when you go deeper into the atom you finally have to say that everything is nothing but some form of energy you know something is visible form of energy which you sometimes call matter and everything else if you were to just call that energy as divine if you were to just label that energy as parmatma you would see that it's the substratum there's nothing can exist without that and you know what we call maya could just be limited understanding when your understanding becomes absolutely profound and complete you would see that you're talking of the same thing whether you see it or you don't see it maybe sometime later we'll dwell into that and see what what all swami has said in it if only we could just you know call out some of those wise words from swami's discourses after this episode where you know they are in the ashram of sage atri they move forward and they are they go to another ashram and i think uh, the only reason why swami is 
bringing this ashram in because there is no reference to this ashram. Swami doesn't say that whom this, it belongs to. this ashram belongs to such and such a sage or whom Rama and Sita meet in that ashram. He just says that they go to another place. There's a beautiful ashram. There seems to be some inhabitation there. So they go there. They refresh themselves. And then they move on. But in the process of that, Swami you know, uh, reveals this vow which they've taken. Because when the ashramites request that Rama and Sita should stay on there, like it happens in every ashram, where that is when they reveal that they've taken a vow that they won't stay in any one particular ashram for more than one night. Mm. And that is the vow they've taken upon themselves and because of which they have to move ahead. That is what actually happens even at uh, the ashram of Sage Atri. Anybody whom Lord Rama visits wants him to stay on forever there. But uh, he keeps moving on and therefore, yes, Swami mentions about this beautiful hermitage. After they move on from this hermitage comes a sudden, you know, there's a kind of a fearful atmosphere that is created because there's the appearance of a demon, Viradha. Now, Viradha comes and uh, this is possibly one of the first few demons that Lord Rama encounters in the exile. And he comes menacingly towards the brothers. Swami writes how Lakshmana engages this ogre, ogre or demon in battle. And it's a fierce battle that is ensuing there. And Sita is terrified. You know, again, taking a little aside, every time if we keep in mind about Mother Sita being Prakriti, about Rama being Paramatma, and, you know, demons are nothing but embodiments of the six vices. Kama, Krodha, Loba, Moha, Madhamatsarya. So, even if we see it in that metaphorical sense, it makes such beautiful meaning. Prakriti gets scared in the presence of Kamakrodha, Loba, Moha, Mada and Matsarya. So, therefore the Lord comes to destroy these six vices and save Mother Earth. That is the metaphorical meaning. What is directly happening there is Sita is getting scared and she hides behind her Lord and she knows that she's safe behind the Lord. That is another beautiful thing. It brings out Sita's faith. Though she is scared of the ogre, she is very, very firm in her faith in her Lord Rama. She feels that the ogre, however menacing he may look, however dangerous he might be, he is nothing but a little fox compared to the lion that Lord Sri Rama is. So she knows nothing can touch her if she is with the Lord. That is another message for all of us. Nothing can touch us if we are with the Lord. And so Rama sees that Lakshmana is actually tiring in battle. Because it a long battle is ensuing over there. He decides to step in and help. And Swami writes that he fixes a crescent-headed arrow to his bow. And with one arrow, severs the head of Viradha. And that is the end. You know, throughout I think we will see this where Swami always says that Rama had the vow of Okay Bana, Okay Mata, Okay Patni. That is one word, one arrow, one wife. So, every time when Rama annihilates any demon, it happens with just one arrow. And so, with one arrow, he kills Viradha. And uh, when Viradha dies, a kind of a celestial or heavenly being emerges from the body. And that is when the story of Viradha is narrated. The interesting thing is, if you see this very episode in the Valmiki Ramayana, which I was just going through, this is actually quite a chunky episode there. Uh And Swami actually finishes this in one paragraph in the Ramagataraswaini. Compared oh, yes. to the other episodes, because there's quite a battle which happens there. Oh, and, between Viradha uh, right, and Rama. Viradha and Rama, because he comes and there is a altercation where this Viradha says that I'm going to eat you up, I'm a man-eating demon, and I'm going to take Sita for my wife. And in fact, 
Valmiki says that he even uh, abducts Sita and that's when this battle starts between Rama and Lakshmana and this uh, ogre. And one of the things which this ogre is having a particular boon, the boon is he cannot be killed by any weapons. Uh-huh. That is why they are able to remove his limbs, they are even able to behead him but they are not able to kill the ogre. And that is when the ogre, you know, says that, Rama says, according to the Valmiki Ramayana, Rama says that, see, I think this demon will not be killed by any of our weapons. So let us dig a big pit and we'll bury this, you know, demon there. That's the only way he can be killed. The moment Rama says this, then this Virada, you know, he says that, I understand that you are Rama who has come to, you know, release me from the curse. And then he says, he's he's actually a Gandharva by name Tumburu. You know, he's one of those celestial musicians and from the kingdom of Kubera. So the story goes that he is with the other Apsaras when the king Kubera comes and he kind of belittles him by not recognizing him and continuing with his play with his playmates. That's when he gets cursed that you'll go and become an ogre like this. And then after taking pity, he says that Lord Rama will come and release you. And that is why I think even the Ramakatha Swami says that Rama actually completes the, you know, final obsequies of this Rakshasa you know, rights, final, final rights you know he does it for this Rakshasa you know gets him buried and like he would do for a normal human being I think the thing was that he could not be killed any other way also that was also which was the boon which he had but it's interesting for whatever reason Bhagwan, as you said summarizes this entire thing in just one paragraph because even the story that is there in the Ramkatara Savaini just states that uh, he had been cursed by Kubera and he was released by Rama. Reading the Ramkatha Rasavahini, I was absolutely unaware of what is there in the Valmiki Ramayana till you narrated it now. But reading the Ramkatha Rasavahini, you know, I just felt, was this person, this Virada, now you have revealed that his name was Tumburu. Was Tumburu cursed actually or was he blessed? You know, because when the Lord comes actually, when the Lord is by your side, when it pertains to God, I don't think there's anything called a curse. Reading his story, you feel that Virada was so blessed. In fact, you see, even Dasharatha did not have the blessing of having his funeral rites performed by Rama, the lord of the universe, though Rama was his own son. But that blessing, this uh, Virada, Tumburu, (laughs) this person gets it. It's so amazing, it makes you wonder whether what Kubera's curse was actually a curse. Now, we can't ascertain what were Kubera's intentions. Was he wanting to bless him and he put a curse on him which was a blessing in disguise? We can leave all that out. But one thing that becomes very evident from reading the Ramkatara Savaini, this story is, whether it's a blessing or a curse, it's always a blessing if it pertains to the Lord. Once you are with the Lord, once you are with Swami, Once you have Swami by your side, once you live in Swami's name, once you enshrine Him in your heart, once you enthrone Him in your life, then there's nothing like a curse in your life. Whatever difficulty may come, whatever hardship may come, whatever may be what you think is cursed, you will have the serenity, peace, calm and the conviction to know that it is just a blessing possibly in disguise. That's all. That becomes very evident when we read this episode. The other thing is, you know, one statement which Swami has made many times before is, you know, he would say that the avatars came with different weapons. Rama came with a bow and arrow and Krishna came with the chakra. Hmm. Swami would say, I've come with only one weapon and that's the weapon of love. And if you just put that in this particular template which we have formed, you know, where, uh, you know, cursed beings are coming and getting liberated by Lord Rama. Hmm. 
many a times honestly when we look at swami we always have this doubt of why this person is getting so much of attention hmm. you know because in our worldly reasoning we feel that that person does not deserve it he seems to be a person who's bad you know who is apparently bad or negative or you know doesn't deserve that kind of a grace but we always see that that person gets so much of attention from swami so much of love from swami if you look at it that way you know maybe you never know what's the past of the person who's getting that attention and in the trita yuga or the dwapara yuga swami used the the weapon which he had in his hand and here swami said my weapon is love so maybe the process of liberating that person from that negative persona which he was adorning that time maybe was through this special attention which swami had to give so i think it's very important for us to not be judgmental i think we've told it so many times more to ourselves than exactly. to our listeners exactly more when we narrate it but i think it's becoming more and more common because you know when we talk of gandharvas it is an elevated state of being you know when you talk of human being that is a certain blessing which takes for you to be a human being when you are a person who lives in a higher plane of existence like in that of the heavenly abode or in the puranas you say the shivaloka the vishnu loka the brahma loka you know these are all certain higher levels of existence if a person who has been living in that existence you know has been living in the kingdom of kubera could come down to the level of a man eating ogre hmm. you know that's the amount of difference we go by so much of what we see if you see a person who is let's say you see a cannibal now our approach to that person is so different we see him as downright evil but you never know what is the past which has led to that and because that's when our human reasoning actually breaks down completely exactly while uh, rama blesses virada in this manner you know when swami says that his love is for all god's love is for everyone that's what becomes evident here because virada gets the same blessing as the next soul that we are going to see gets while virada is condemned as a demon and ogre and somebody who is fit to be just killed the next being is someone worthy of all our adoration and worthy of emulation and that is sage sarabhanga it is said that sarabhanga has done penance and tapas for several several decades and uh, there is a glow about him he is a very very spiritually elevated being and as we read the ramkatha rasavani we realize that he has kept his body alive only for the sake of seeing lord shri rama in fact when lord rama comes this is the famous story where he prepares a funeral pyre actually and he prays to lord rama saying lord rama you are the fructification the fulfillment of my entire life all the tapophala that i have you know all the fruits of penance that i have i offer to you because all that was done just to get you and once i have got you i have no use of for those fruits of my penance so that is how he offers all his penance at the feet of rama again you know there are so many levels of meaning here so he offers that to rama and then he says rama now that i have seen you there is nothing else left in the universe for me to see hear or do nothing that's done and that is why you know he builds a yogic fire with his own capacity and in that fire he immolates himself on the face of it this might appear like a suicide and uh, if someone says that how is it that the lord encourages suicide there are a lot of difference you know when you see a suicide victim when you see somebody immolating himself or herself somewhere you see the kind of struggle they go through the amount of pain that they go through okay which shows that they identify themselves completely with the body 
they are not yet liberated because they know that they are the body and they feel that they are experiencing pain. But see the case of Sage Sarabhanga. Even as his skin is scalding, as his eyeballs melt out of the sockets and his whole body is burning, he is having a blissful smile. He is feeling no pain at all. So once one is liberated, yes, the body is given for a purpose and that purpose is to liberate the being within. And once that liberation is achieved, there is no further use for the body. And so therefore, on the face of it, this appears to be like a suicide. It is definitely not the case. It is a case of fulfillment and fructification. And therefore, as Sage Sarabhanga sits in that yogic pyre that he has created, his entire being is filled with joy and without the slightest murmur of pain or slightest hint of suffering, he just lets go of the physical frame and becomes complete ashes. In fact, Swami writes that the other residents of the ashram, his disciples, they are first grief-stricken because their master is now gone, because it has not yet sunk in them about the magnitude of blessing that he has achieved. And once that starts sinking, they go ahead, take the ash that is remaining from his pyre and apply it across their forehead as vibhuti. Again, this particular episode is very interestingly different in the Valmiki Ramayana. Hmm. Because if you look at uh, one of the main difference, as we started off, we said this, you know, between Swami's account of the Ramayana and Valmiki's, you know, where Valmiki Ramayana is that of a human being looking at a fellow human being with certain enhanced qualities at best. But Swami was always talking of it at the level of he is the incarnation of the ultimate Parabrahman. So you would always find that the tone of Swami being that, yes, he is the ultimate, he is the ultimate. But in the Valmiki Ramayana, there are very, very few instances where Valmiki reveals that Rama himself says that I am the ultimate. Because, you know, that is the uh, boon which Ravana has at the end of the day, that he can be killed only by a human being. So the drama is played out in such a way that Rama never reveals. In fact, there are dialogues where, you know, some of the sages come and tell him that you are the ultimate. So then Rama says, no, no, I am not the the greatest or I am just the prince of Ayodhya, the son of Dashata. That dialogue repeating in many places in the Ramayana. But this particular episode, where he comes to Sarabhanga, you know, the way it is described, as Rama and Lakshmana approach this sage's ashram, they actually see a heavenly palanquin or a chariot waiting to take Sarabhanga. They see a divine being in that chariot and they see the sight and uh, Rama tells Lakshmana, hey, look at that, I think it is Lord Indra who has come. Hmm. So he says, come, let us go and meet him. The moment they start approaching towards the ashram, Indra tells Sharabhanga that, you know, see, Rama is coming. This is not the opportune moment for me to have his darshan. So let me leave before he comes here. So he goes and then they reach Sharabhanga and then they ask him, who is that, you know, divine heavenly being who is here? Then Sharabhanga says that it was Lord Indra who has come to take me to the heaven. And then Sharabhanga says, tells Lord Rama that I have refused that offer because I knew that you were coming and I have been waiting for that. So he says, I have turned down an offer to go to heaven so that I can be a host to you. And at this point, Rama says that, you know, I am so pleased with you, O Sage. Tell me which world you want. I will bring it down here for you. Mm. You know, for that one moment, he reveals that, you know, everything, be it heaven or any other world, it is under my control. Tell me which one you want. I will bring it down here for you. And that is when, you know, Sharabhanga says that I don't want anything, but just give me this boon. That let me see you as I die. So he is, I think, one of those rare characters who has this opportunity, which even Dasharada did not have. Now later we will speak of Jatayu had the opportunity to die at, you know, Rama's lap. And this is the story of the Sharabhanga as told in the Valmiki Ramayana actually. That is again very beautiful. 
and uh, it is time for us to conclude our satsang well as they say in order to enjoy the taste of the sugar syrup you don't need to drink the whole bottle a sip is enough two sips are enough three sips are enough in the same way though the quantity of time we might have spent may be less the quality is always sweet because it is about our lord we will leave you with this song in bhagwan's own voice where you know it's actually a bhajan which swami sings in which he summarizes many parts of the ramayana there is the third stanza here where he sings actually about this sage this muni sarabhanga so we thought it would be best to conclude with bhagwan's own voice singing this bhajan rama 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 sita we hope you are enjoying the sweet story of rama just as we are enjoying it do write to us at listener@radiosai.org with your feedback comments and thoughts they are most welcome thank you jai sai ram 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 sitara ram 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 sitara ram 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 sitara ram 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 ಮತ್ಯಕುಲ ಮಂಗು ಜನಿಂಚಿ ಸೀತಾದೇವಿ ಪ್ರೀತಿವರಿಂಚಿ ಮನಹಾಪಮುಚಿ ಪ್ರಿಯಭಕ್ತುಲರಕ್ಷಿಂಚಿನ ಶ್ರೀರಘು ರಾಮ ರಾಮ ಹನುಮಂತುಣಿ ದೀವಿಂಚಿ ಬುಧಮಲರಗರವಿಸುತು ಪಾಲಿಂಚಿ ಚೆಂಡಿನ ಕಿನುಕತ ವಾಲಿನಿರುಂಚಿ ಚೇರಿನ ವಾನರ ಪೀರುಲ ಬ್ರೋಚಿನ ರಾಮ ರಾಮ ಕರದೂಷಣ ಮುಖ ಧನುಜುಲದೃಂಚಿ ಕರುಣ ಜಟಾಯು ಗತಿ ಸವರಿಂಚಿ ಶರಭಂಗಾತಿ ಮುನೀಂದ್ರುಲಭೋಚಿ ಶಬರಿ ಫಲವುಲು ಪ್ರೇಮ ಭುಜಿಂಚಿನ ರಾಮ ರಾಮ ರಾವಣಾದಿ ಸುರ ವೈರುಲ ದೃಂಚಿ ರಮಣಿತೋಡ ಸಾಧುಲ ಪಾಲಿಂಚಿ ಆವನ ರಾಶಿನಿ ನೀಟು ಬಂದಿಂಚಿ ಆಧರ ಮುಗ ಪಿಭೀಷಣು ಬ್ರೋಚಿನ ರಾಮ ರಾಮ ನಿಜ ಸಹೋದರು ನೀನು ಸೇವಿಂಚಗ ಸೇವಿಂ 
ಇನ್ನು ಗೋಲ್ಸಿ ಪ್ರಜಲೆಲ್ಲ ಸುಖಿಂಪದ ಅಜಕರಾದು ಸುರುಲೆಲ್ಲರು ತಿಂಪದ ಆನಂದ ಮುತೋ ಅಯೋಜನೆಯಿನ ರಾಮನ You just heard an episode of our radio program Afternoon Satsang. This was a segment of Radio Sai's Thursday Live hosted by Prem and Arvind at 12:30 p.m. Indian Standard Time on Thursdays only on Asia Stream of Radio Sai Global Harmony. The discussion was on Ramakatha Rasavahini, a book written by Swami, and today's episode was first broadcast live on 14th May 2015. Dear listener, we hope you liked this program. As always you can send us your feedback to listener@radiosai.org. You could also WhatsApp us your feedback to this number 9393258258. Thank you and Sai Ram.